Please open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 9. Cover of your bulletin gives you a little heads up about where we're going. How's that for a provocative image? Mm. Weighty and full of meaning. Um, when you see a skull and crossbones, you know, okay, uh, something needs to, you know, get my attention. Uh, maybe there's something unhealthy here. I, I, should, I should ask some questions perhaps before, you know, drinking or going forward or eating or whatever the case may be. Uh, there are warnings in Scripture that uh, are helpful for us. And if we ignore them, they can lead to our peril. Uh, if we heed them, uh, they can lead to blessing. And so when you uh, and, and I hear these next uh, verses from Zechariah chapter 9, uh, I want you to hear God's warning to us, uh, a, a warning to the nations, a warning to all those who would otherwise uh, kind of continue down their own path according to their own wisdom, according relying on their own uh, resources instead of relying on the grace that God gives us. So let's stand in honor of God's Word. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. <clears throat> the oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also because its hopes are confounded the king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Let me pray for us. Father, please uh, come and bless your word, uh, bless its reading and hearing and receiving. Help us to heed uh, the warnings of Scripture help us to receive them as you intend them, as, as love, not as threats, um, and to, to come to you to turn from our self-reliance and to rely on Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please, please be seated. <clears throat> we're, we're in sort of a, a second part of Zechariah. The first eight chapters had a lot of uh, visions and imagery, some metaphors uh, that uh, I, th I think, you know, if, if you've done any reading in the prophets, you go, yeah, that's, that's how the prophets sound. They like to use lots of sort of strange, even apocalyptic pictures. Um, 
And then there's another voice to the prophets that sort of, you know, depending on how you're listening, depending on how your ears are tuned in, can either sound like, you know, um, Mrs. Wilson, my third grade teacher who just read me the riot act uh, one time and I think I got caught cheating or, or something like that. I can still remember the dark hallway and her eyes just kind of went back and forth. They just vibrated and they were scary and I didn't know what the heck was happening. Anyway, uh, you can read these prophet, prophetic warnings and just sort of be, be uh, um, uh, put out of sorts or uh, we can hear them the way God intends them to say, hey, look, I'm going to tell you the truth because I care about you and I love you and I see all things and I know what's healthy and I know what's not healthy and let me tell you about what's going to happen if you step out onto thin ice. And so here you've got God declaring in verse 1 that he has his eye on mankind. In, in verse 9, I'm sorry, in verse 8, he says, you know, I see everything. Um, and so the one who sees everything in his, in his kindness uh, will tell us when he sees something that's dangerous. So let's talk about how, how the Lord sees everything. He has an eye on mankind, as, as verse 1 indicates. Uh, back in chapter 4, we, we were introduced to the same sort of theme that, that the eyes of the Lord range to and fro uh, throughout the earth, right? And, um, and the Proverbs and other parts of the Bible affirm the same thing, that the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and, and the good. Um, this is a theme roaming throughout Scripture. It's not a, it's not a new theme. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, though, th- this really is uh, the, the, the accurate depiction of God's, God's knowledge, His omniscience. He knows everything. And, um, and these images aren't new uh, to us just if you're new to the Bible. You, you see them all over uh, all kinds of literature, and remember the Great Gatsby. Uh, I remember uh, being in high school and reading the Great Gatsby, the paperback version, and on the cover of, of the, the the book that I was reading, the printed edition I had, uh, were were two eyes, um, and then uh, the, you know the house, Gatsby's house, on the bottom of the the image. Uh, those two eyes come from uh, this this scene that Fitzgerald puts in the in the book of this old. Um, dilapidated billboard. It looks like it's about to fall down. Um, it's, it's really faded, but, but the eyes are really visible. Uh, and they overlook this, this area called the, the Valley of Ashes, um, this place that you've got to drive through to get from the city out to the eggs, to the, you know, the lifestyles of the rich and famous, uh, Gatsby's house and everybody else. They have to drive through kind of this blue-collar territory that's gray and there's there's garbage and there's trash and this, this billboard that's for an optometrist, uh, Dr. T.J. Eckelberg, uh, looks over this area and, and Gatsby puts this billboard, I mean Fitzgerald puts this billboard in the great Gatsby uh, to show us a picture of how you know, God sees. So um, if you are a, a fan of great literature, you go to great websites like Schmoop uh, to look up commentary on great literature. Anyway, this uh, schmoop.com says that despite the absence of religion from the characters in this story, God is still there. He's all-seeing, ever-present, and frowning. (laughs) Things are not well in the valley of American ashes. Um, It's this uh, commentary on whether it's Wilson's 
jealousy of Gatsby that leads him to, to kill Gatsby. You know, Wilson's the gas-pumping guy who lives in the Valley of Ashes. Or the glitz and glamour and um, absolute narcissism of, you know, the lifestyles of the rich and famous. God is looking down this, this vision of, you know, how God sees all of the, uh, the shallowness of, of our humanity and so on. So, um, what, so it's in literature, it's also on our currency, this, this idea that there's an eye that sees everything, right? If you have ever looked at the back of your dollar bill, you know that there's the great seal. Uh, the great seal of the United States, I think it was uh, developed in 1782. On the front of the great seal is the eagle, and it's got that uh, crest on it, and the arrows, and the olive branches, and the 13 stars, etc. So that's on the front of the great seal. The back of the great seal <clears throat> is that weird pyramid, right? It's this unfinished pyramid. It's got 13, you know, layers to it, like a cake, 13 colonies, but it's, it doesn't have a point to it. It's unfinished. Our nation is, you know, they viewed it as expanding and unfinished uh, back in 1782. But instead of a top to the pyramid is the eye of providence. <clears throat> the eye of providence is this picture of God's watching over our country, watching over the world, seeing all things, and, and so on. And so this, this idea, this concept of God seeing all things is, is not new, and it's not even unique uh, to the Bible. Is, but the question really for us is, is it good news or not? Um, if God sees everything, that means he sees everything in my life, he sees everything in your life. And that's both disruptive and, uh, and comforting simultaneously. Like, so on the one hand, it's disruptive because it sort of sounds like God's out to get us. Uh, he knows our number. Um, you remember uh, Monsters Incorporated, Roz telling Mike Wazowski, I'm watching you, always watching. Uh, and that, that makes us feel like God's watching, always watching, he's out to get us, and he knows all of our demerits, all of our faults, all of our failings. And actually, that thought has been what makes people react to say, well, I don't believe in a God like that. I don't believe in a God that's always watching, uh, in fact, I'm not sure that there is any sort of grand cosmic awareness at all. Okay, then let's follow that thought up. What if there is no such thing as God's omniscience? And what if there is no celestial being that sees all? What if the top of the pyramid was just empty and no eye? Well, then you've got another problem altogether. If there's no cosmic awareness, then there's really no hope for justice. There's no hope that people who exercise raw power without any consequences are ever going to have consequences. There's really no hope for people that are oppressed or abused or taken advantage of, you don't have the resources to defend themselves, there's really no hope for them that they'll ever have such a thing as justice. That there will ever be any final accountability. Is that, is that the price you want to pay in order to have your sense of, um, of independence and autonomy in this universe? I don't want any you know, grand eye watching me. I want to be free to do my own thing and, you know, not be held accountable for that. Well, 
Uh, weigh that in the scales and see if that leaves you uh, at an advantage or a disadvantage. The, the Bible clearly expresses the fact that there is a God. He's on his throne and he sees everything and he's watching. Um, and he sees the nations to the north of Israel here back in Zechariah. He sees places like Damascus and Tyre and Sidon. And he will hold them accountable. They cannot escape uh, his knowledge. They cannot escape uh, his justice and they will be held accountable. Uh, in fact, if Zechariah wanted to, he could have just said, all right, um, boys and girls, children of Israel, gather around for a Bible study in Exodus chapter 2. Open, open your scrolls you know, to Exodus chapter 2. And he could have just said, look, look at what happened and God's promise uh, to his people when uh, Joseph and um, his family came down, they migrated south into Egypt to escape the famine. They were welcomed by the Pharaoh, the first Pharaoh, and then they were told during those uh, many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And listen to this. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And God was going to act on their behalf. And there would be justice, and there would be consequences, uh, and there would be um, rescue for the defenseless, etc. So um, really what's going on here in Zechariah is a declaration of God's power, his omniscience, but um, but at the same time, it's a gracious warning to these nations. Uh, nations who have, uh, for instance, Tyre, who's built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust. You know, they're so rich that, you know, silver has the, uh, the, the value of dust. Uh, they're so rich that fine gold is like the mud of the streets. And God says, watch out because I will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the seas and she shall be devoured by fire. Um, these are the nations that are relying on their, their wealth and uh, their wisdom back in verse 2, right? Uh, Tyre and Sidon, they're very wise. Um, these are coastal cities, both, both Tyre and Sidon, um, Mediterranean uh, sea travel and trade is uh, they're, they're experts at. And they've established uh, colonies and trade routes all through the Mediterranean basin, and they've become incredibly wealthy. Uh, Tyre especially. Tyre had uh, developed, because they were literally an island city uh, right off the coast, uh, had uh, developed a way of creating really rare, incredibly expensive purple dye from certain uh, seashells. And uh, because it was so labor-intensive, because it took so much work to get just a little bit of this purple dye, it was incredibly expensive, and therefore it became really popular among the nobility and the royalty. And so if you wanted to show off your wealth, you would have, you would have dye, purple dye from Tyre, this Tyrian purple. Um, and because Tyre and Sidon considered themselves to be you know, world-class cities in the ancient world, they were just like, you know, uh, cities today, if you're bigger and better, you think you're, you know, wiser and just a little bit more sophisticated than your average city, just like, you know, Stanton considers itself a little bit better, a little bit wiser than Waynesboro. Uh, and just like uh, Seaville considers itself a little bit better, a little bit wiser than Stanton. Um, 
Just like RVA considers itself a little bit better and a little bit wiser than Seville. So basically, the more your name of your city becomes an acronym, the cooler you are. The wiser you are. Uh, take heart, Waynesboro. Um, we're bigger and better than Stuart's draft. Uh, so, um, I love Stuart's draft. All right. So what do you think of, 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 of warnings like this? This is typical prophet stuff, right? You know, gloom and doom and destruction coming on these cities. And there's a part of us that's like, eh, all right, I've heard that, I've read that, and, and we just, can we just move on to the Gospels, to the nice stuff, the good stuff, the stuff that I want to spend my quiet times in? Um, do, you, do, do we sort of dismiss these warnings, and, we, and do we turn aside from them because we feel like that's just, you know, the prophets are all cranky and, and not inspiring and so on? Well, all right, so if you were, if it was winter and you were just out on the South River and you decided you wanted just to go for a walk, and you were about to step into thin ice and somebody warned you, hey, stop, turn around, come back, you might be grateful, Right? You might be grateful for that warning. Um, you might be grateful uh, to grab, if you were to grab for that Tide pod and think, oh, it's so pretty and looks like candy and you know, somebody's going to warn you, don't, don't eat that, it's going to hurt you. You might be grateful. Uh, the warnings of Scripture are, um, are, are grace to us with uh, a skull and crossbone sticker applied. You, know, um, you need this warning. I need this warning. Everybody needs these warnings, even though they sound so ominous and, and, and pessimistic. You know, you can imagine somebody saying, oh, warnings are a threat uh, to my autonomy. I just want to live my life. Why does anybody have to tell me what to do or not to do? And, you know, that kind of person uh, doesn't want warnings because they want to assert their independence. But that person's a fool. That person thinks that somehow the Bad things don't apply to them um, instead of realizing, no, wait, I need to heed warnings and I need boundaries in my life because some things are actually bad for me. Uh, so these are not threats. Uh, these are grace to us. Yes, they're, they're, they're not pretty, uh, but they are gifts. Um, so when you look at Tyre and Sidon and God's warning to them, don't rely on your wisdom. Don't rely on your wealth. You know, we, we get this uh, picture of something that applies, I think, to us 2,500 years later uh, in our nation where we think we're pretty wealthy and wise. Um, Benjamin Franklin encouraged us to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Americans are not very healthy, but we do think we're pretty wealthy and we do think we're pretty wise. Uh, everywhere we go, we're told over and over and over again that these are the virtues that you're supposed to pursue in Western culture, um, wealth and, and wisdom. Uh, and yet, in Isaiah chapter 5, we're told, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. You know, warning, don't rely on your own wisdom. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Uh, in, in modern English, you know, woe to those who think they're the smartest person in the room. Woe to those who think that they don't need to learn anything. Woe to those who think that they don't need warnings. You know, um, back to the dollar bill. Uh, you know, one thing that it says on it that uh, in addition to the great seal, uh, as I know many of you are aware, is the phrase, in God we trust. That's this phrase that keeps kind of coming under, under fire, the ACLU and others who don't want any claims to divine uh, 
references on our currency or even in any of our you know, national institutions I want to want to remove that phrase, in God we trust. Um, I, I like that phrase. I think it's great. Uh, there's another phrase here, though, that I am a little bit, I think is, is questionable, uh, and maybe you've never considered it, but it's, a, it's actually a, the one above the pyramid. It's in Latin, um, and I had to look it up because I didn't I had one year of Latin in eighth grade. Um, I don't remember anything. But this phrase says, annuit coptus. Uh, and it's right above the pyramid, right above that eye of providence. Annuit coptus. And annuit coptus in Latin means he approves our undertakings and endeavors. Meaning that God, <laughs> where that phrase is, you know, printed right above the eye of providence, that God approves of the establishment of this nation. And hey, I'm all for this nation being established. But I think it might be a stretch, depending on how they were applying that phrase, to say that God approves of everything about the establishment of this nation. And if you're a fan of the musical Hamilton, you know about the Schuyler sisters, right? The Schuyler sisters who wanted to give Thomas Jefferson a piece of their mind. And if I meet Mr. Jefferson, I'm going to tell him to put women in the sequel. All men are created equal. Well, so did God approve of the fact that when our nation was founded, you know, women were treated like second-class citizens? And then you've got this whole other group of people, uh, slaves, for instance, who are like, we're not even considered people, let alone created equal. Uh, and so, does God approve? Does God approve of our undertaking as a, as a new nation to say, all right, there's second-class citizens, and then there's this other group of people who aren't even people, uh, and we can treat as property, etc. So, uh, I think it's thin ice for any person, any group of people, even any nation to say, God approves of our undertakings. Uh, in Proverbs 11, it says, whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. So whether you're trusting in your, your wisdom, whether you're trusting in your wealth, God is saying, don't rely on your own resources. You will not find security. You will not find salvation trusting in yourself. Uh, in fact, God in his grace, warns us not to. And why would we ever imagine a God who does see everything, who would not, therefore, because he sees everything and because he sees which ice is thick and which ice is thin, why, can, why would we not imagine that that God also would, therefore, warn us when he sees his people moving over to the thin ice and say, stop, don't go there. God's warnings may sound like threats to some, but they're actually invitations. They're invitations to repent, to turn, to change, to leave the direction that you're going that's going to lead to peril and to change directions that's going to lead to blessing. Um, Jack Miller uh, described this, uh, this need for warnings as uh, God's invitation to turn from the deadly peril of misdirected faith. So the prophets remind us again and again to ask ourselves, what am I trusting in? What's my hope for salvation and for security? What if, what if my soul, what if my soul was actually on thin ice? 
And instead, God says in, in, in Isaiah 49, for instance, then you will know that I am the Lord and that those who hope in me will not be disappointed. Those who hope in the Lord will not be disappointed. Because those who hope in the Lord move into this special relationship with God where he not only has his eye on all the nations and he knows the good and the evil and, you know, hey, let's face it, we're all victims, but we're all perpetrators too. We're all sort of oppressed and we're all oppressors. And, and so when God's going to weigh the scales, he's not going to separate this group of people from this group of people. The dividing line goes right through our hearts and he sees the good and the evil in all of us. And so how do I escape from my own accountability for, you know, my own sins and the poison that's in my own heart? How do I move from this posture of having his threats appointed to me to, as we sang, praise the grace whose threats alarmed me and taught me to flee to him? How do I get in his good uh, standing? How do I become the apple of his eye? And um, back in chapter 2, of Zechariah, um, the promise was made that whoever touches you, God's people, touches the apple of God's eye. So look at the second half of this passage, beginning in verse 5. And you've got all these sort of strange-sounding communities and cities like Ashkelon and Gaza and Ekron and Ashdod. Uh, Those are four of the five Uh, Philistine communities that were north of Jerusalem. And as we've been looking at Zechariah, if you're new, let me catch you up, like all the enemies came from the north, whether it was Babylon, whether it was Assyria, whether it was Persia, they were all coming from the north. And the Philistine cities are to the north. And and so this is where the threat kept coming from. And now God is saying, I'm going to handle the threat. And these cities are all going to be dealt with. But there's this promise There's this remarkable promise that even though in verse 7, these are the communities that have, I mean, here's this vivid, prophetic, you know, apocalyptic imagery, right? Here's what the prophets are famous for. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. You know, these, these awful, idolatrous sacrifices. And it too, look at the end of verse 7. It too... These, these idolatrous enemy communities, it too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like the clan, like a clan in Judah, a member of God's people. And Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. The Jebusites were this tribe when, um, when, when uh, Israel was conquering Canaan. Uh, David let the Jebusites, he spared the Jebusites, and they were incorporated into Israel. They became a part of the, the Israelite community. They became God's people, even though they were originally foreigners. And God says, that's, going, that's how I'm going to provide security. Then I'm going to encamp at my house. You're not going to be oppressed anymore. Now I see them with my own eyes. These people are the apple of my eye. And it's possible for these nations who were formerly enemies to be regarded as a clan of Judah, to be regarded as the apple of his eye. So all throughout the history of humanity, uh, as, as Frank pointed out last week, he did a great job talking about the first gospel, you know, Adam and Eve and their children, Cain and Abel. Um, there's this picture of how God is turning the hearts of those who were originally created in his image with beauty, 
to demonstrate to the world the kind of character and being that God is, how he governs well and is kind and good. But we turned our backs on that, and ever since then, God has been turning us back to him. All who would respond to that invitation. All who would heed the warning, hey, your soul is on thin ice, Stop walking that direction, turn around and come over to where it's safe. Come into green pastures where you can flourish. And so in Psalm 34, it says that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. How do you and I become considered as righteous? How can God turn his ears toward us, turn his eyes toward us? How can we become righteous instead of, you know, a part of the problem? And so this is where, you know, these warnings are not just for the nations to the north, you know, those enemies, etc. The warnings are also come to God's people. Uh, the warnings sound ominous and they sound sort of stereotypically like the prophets, but um, listen to another warning, another prophet. This one might surprise you. This is from Luke chapter 10. Woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida, for... If the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, you remember we were just reading about Tyre and Sidon and Zechariah? If the works done for you, done in you, had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you shall be brought down to Hades. Uh, that's Jesus talking. Uh, and th- those are Jesus' gracious words of warning uh, to, to us, to religious people. Jesus is actually saying that Israel is more hard-hearted than Tyre and Sidon. Why? Uh, because sometimes we fall into this rut of everything just becomes normal and we feel entitled to God's favor and we think God loves us because we're us, and we're different from those other people. And the reason why uh, God considers me the apple of his eye is because of me rather than because of him. And it's really easy to slip into that mode where we rely on ourselves, We rely on our own wisdom. We rely on our own wealth. We rely on our own religion instead of relying on Jesus. All of Jesus' warnings were not stern like that. Some of them were very tender. Here's another one of Jesus' warnings. Um, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, so who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus calls to him a child and he put the child in the midst of him and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn, listen to the warning, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus saying? What do we know about kids and what they're like? like so kids, uh, unless you turn and become like a little child, kids trust in their parents. Um, kids are not relying on their own wisdom. Kids are, if, they're, if, if anything, they drive mom and dad crazy asking why <laughs> or how come or when. You know, they're always wanting instruction and guidance from mom and dad. And kids aren't saying, hey, I mean, once they turn that magical age of about 12, right? Then they start saying, no, nah, I got this, mom and dad. But before then, they're just, they, they drive you crazy asking why. 
and they want mom and dad's counsel, and they want mom and dad's instruction. They're trying to figure out this world, and you know where they go to for that expert counsel? They go to mom and they go to dad. Kids aren't relying on their own wealth. I mean, you know, everything they have comes from mom and dad. Mom, dad, can I have this? Can I have that? Can I have this? I mean, right up until when they're 27 years old, still the same thing. Mom, dad, can I have this? Can I have that? So sometimes we do want them to rely on their own wealth. Uh, anyway, you get, my, you get what I'm saying. They totally depend on mom and dad. A little child looks to mom and dad as the source for all things. They're not relying on their own productivity. They're not, a five-year-old does not tell mom and dad, hey, I got this. I'll, I'll pay for dinner, you know. And so over and over again, children demonstrate to us the dependence that God envisions for us as we depend on our Father in heaven. That's the kind of trust we're supposed to have in him. So it's one thing to say you believe in God. It's another thing entirely to trust him. To rely on him. Have faith in him. To stop relying on your own wisdom, your own accounting of what's right and what's wrong, and go to him and his word and say, God, instruct me, teach me, show me the the universe and the world and how it all works. And it's a whole other thing to say, God, I got this, versus God, you give me everything and I absolutely depend on you. And uh, I'll I'll tell you the story of how we were praying that in the car on the way home last night at 10 o'clock and got stranded in Woodstock, Virginia at the Walmart parking lot. Um, So anyway, just over and over again, God confronts us with places where we have to trust him. And religious people are notorious for sort of giving lip service to faith and trust in God. And really all it is is just a, a, a veneer for, I got this, God. And the reason why I'm the apple of your eye is because, well, of course, who wouldn't love me and, you know, consider me the apple of his or her eye? So anyway, back to the kids, we, we don't want our kids to, to drink poison. And we warn them about stuff like this, you know, Drano, don't, don't drink this. And it's, there's a reason why it's got, you know, poison labels all over it, because it's bad for us. And any good, kind parent is going to warn their kids not to take a swig of Drano. God is a loving father, and he warns us not to, you know, put our soul on thin ice. Don't drink the poison. He calls us away from what is poisonous to our soul to stand before him and be approved by him because of what he's done for us in Jesus. This all-seeing eye bids us to come away, to step off of the thin ice of self-reliance and to trust in Jesus, to rely on Jesus, to be forgiven by Jesus. Uh, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, in the end... That day, that judgment day, that face which is the delight or the terror of the universe must be turned upon each of us, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. It's written in the Bible that we shall stand before him. That we shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise, this, you know, the eye, right? That will inspect us. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible, and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us, that any of us who 
really chooses shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, and shall please God. Do you remember, do you remember our little Latin phrase, annuit coptus? He approves of our undertakings. The only way you can truly have that spoken over you, that, that the eye of God could ever say that about you or about me, is to hold on to and be united to the only human being who has ever really earned that statement. That God approves of Jesus' undertakings. And if we're united to Jesus in faith, then yes, He does approve of us. And apart from being united to Jesus in faith, you and I are accountable for our sin. And we have to hide and, and cling to Jesus. Uh, let me wrap up with this. Uh, let me wrap up with how Mark, um, Mark's gospel wraps up. It's kind of puzzling, actually. Last, two, last couple of verses in, in Mark 16 say things like this. The, these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Um, so that's how Mark's gospel ends. And most scholars believe that these verses were added later. Um, and, and a lot of your good study Bibles will give you some of the, the, the helpful notes and a good explanation. So um, look, I, I know that there are, are snake handling Christians out there, uh, but that's not normative for the church. Uh, neither is drinking poison to test faith, you know, to demonstrate faith. Um, so these are not normative for the church, but just because a Christian um, you know, ends up eating a bunch of Tide Pods and calls the Poison Control Center doesn't mean that person doesn't believe in Jesus. They might be stupid, but they, don't, but they, but they do believe in Jesus still. Uh, so that's not a test of faith. Uh, the person who handles snakes or drinking poison or whatever, that's not normative. Just because this verse isn't normative, though, doesn't mean that it's fictitious. It might be apocryphal, but it's not fictitious because we do know that there's, you know, from one point of view, there's been at least one person we can point to who drank the deadly poison and lived to tell the tale. When Jesus took the, the cup of God's wrath, the, the, the wine of the wrath of God, and drank it to its dregs, it killed him. It was poisonous to Jesus' soul. But he drank it so that you and I would not have to drink it. And you and I know the rest of the story, that it, it didn't kill him in the final sense. Jesus, it didn't overcome him. He overcame death and rose again from the dead, defeating death, defeating sin, defeating uh, and, and satisfying uh, justice so that our guilt and our shame would be taken away. And Jesus now, uh, as it were, sucks that poison right out of us. Faith in Jesus and being united to Jesus means that, that poison is losing its deadly effect on our lives. And all who trust in him have life in him. We get justified from our sins. Uh, we are approved before God. And he gives us his spirit, this antidote for our own you know, poisonous uh, souls. And he's sucking the poison out of us continually and making us more and more like Jesus. More loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more truthful, 
and all the other ways that we can grow in the fruit of the Spirit. So that is what God is doing through the grace of his warnings. As we heed them, as we turn to Jesus, and as we keep following him. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we thank you for how well you love us. Um, You see everything. And in your goodness and wisdom, you you warn us when you see us heading into danger. Uh, You interrupt our path and you, you call us away from what is perilous and you call us to embrace what is blessing. Thank you for blessing us in Jesus. Thank you for new life that we can have through him and deliverance from sin. Uh, Thank you for the promise of being a part of your family, of standing approved before you, of receiving your love and knowing that it will be ours for an eternity. We pray for those who who still need to turn, um, whose souls are on thin ice. And we do pray that you would convict them of their uh, of their danger and, and cause them to turn and to trust in Jesus and to cling to him and know that they cannot rely on our own wisdom or wealth or any other resources. And Lord, would you, would you continually remind the rest of us of where we find life and where safety is, holding on and clinging to Jesus. Father, we, we are praying for, uh, for Tabernacle and ask for you to bless this church as we Glory in the one who rescues us as we share the rescue of Jesus with others. We pray.